This program is brought to you by Grand Valley State University. of Elmore, Alabama. The interviewer is James Smither, Grand Valley State University. Mr. Jefferson, can you start with a little bit of personal background? Where were you born, for instance? Well, I was born in Newark, New Jersey, July 13, 1924, and uh, was raised there, went to school there, mm -hmm. up until I graduated from high school and went to work in civilian jobs until I wanted to join the service. Mm -hmm. Well, to avoid the draft and subsequent uh, to being unable to or undesiring to join the Navy mm -hmm. because all I could be was cook. Right. And I didn't want to cook. And in the Army, they told me I could drive a truck. I didn't want to do mm -hmm. that. And I saw a sign in front of the post office in downtown Newark and Uncle Sam with, I want you. Mm -hmm. And that was a Merchant Marine sign, and I joined up there to where I signed up. Mm -hmm. Then they transferred me, or transported me rather, to the land title building in Philadelphia where I was inducted. Mm -hmm. Then I was sent back to Hoffman Island for my basic training, mm -hmm. and I was trained in the maintenance operation of marine engine equipment. All right. Now, can you describe uh, the Hoffman Island facility? What was that like? Out in the middle of New York Harbor, in November, it was cold, mm -hmm. very cold. And the one thing that I remember distinctly was that the submarine nets that they opened for the ships coming from sea into New York Harbor was attached from Staten Island on one side and Hoffman Island on the other mm -hmm. and from Hoffman Island to the, what they call Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. It was the tip end of Brooklyn where just into New York Harbor. Right. And the tugboats that used to open would open closer to Hoffman Island because that was where the deep channel was. Mm -hmm. And it was cold, and we did our daily marching and routines as far as outdoor exercise is concerned. And I had attended classes where they taught us about the operation of engine room equipment, mm -hmm. boilers, pumps, the whole, uh, should I say, paraphernalia, mm -hmm. uh, academically to an extent that you had to have. And at the end of that, you took a test that transported us to the Coast Guard building in Manhattan, where you had to go from Hoffman Island to Staten Island, take the Staten Island Ferry, mm -hmm. from there to New York, the Battery, which was the, where the Staten Island Ferry docked at that time, it still does. Mm -hmm. And there you, from there you went to, I think it's Church Street, to the courthouse building, and uh, you took your test, and there were three levels where initially you could qualify for. I was wiper, fireman, water tender, and order mm -hmm. for the engine room. And I qualified for that. If you did any better than that, you could go better to you know, fireman and water tender and then to order. And mm -hmm. I got 
both of those in the test. Mm -hmm. And from there, your first call was from the National Maritime Union, which called the uh, National Maritime Service Office mm -hmm. and told them what they needed for the ships that were going out on convoy. Okay, let's back up a little bit uh, to the Hoffman Island experience. Um, about how many people were in the class or group that you were training with? Approximately 90 to 96 people mm -hmm. from all parts of the country. I remember the predominant uh, guys in the same class at that time were from Pennsylvania, Missouri, Pennsylvania, Missouri, and New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And that's most of the guys that were there. There were a few from, I think, South Carolina, but mm -hmm. been so long ago I don't remember distinctly. Now, do you remember how many of you were African American? It was only myself as an African American. Mm -hmm. And what was that experience like? How did people treat you there at the time? Well, this might surprise you. At the school itself, mm -hmm. well, where I was born in New Jersey, I didn't know anything about discrimination. Right. Because I grew up into an integrated neighborhood of mm -hmm. Italians, Jewish people, and black people all in the same neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, my grandparents are from South Carolina. And I used to go there on the summer. That's when I learned about mm -hmm. segregation. But the school itself, all of my classes, I was treated just like I was, mm -hmm. and I am, another American. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I got my first ship that I realized that I was black. Mm -hmm. And the term they used for black people at that time. All right. So what was your first ship assignment? My first ship was a Gulf oil tanker called the Gulf Gem, and what we called a triple expansion engine, a steam engine, reciprocating engine. And the union had called the maritime office and ordered two firemen and two oilers and a wiper. Mm -hmm. Well, I was one of the firemen, water tenders. Mm -hmm. and the first ship, when I went on that ship, I was amazed at the ship because the first time I'd ever seen one. Mm -hmm. And I said, this huge monstrosity looked like it was as big as the world. Right. And I was amazed. I'd never seen other than a mock-up of an engine room. Mm -hmm. You were given books to read. Right. But to see an actual steam engine, mm -hmm. It amazed me. Being 17, I lied about my age in the first place mm -hmm. to get in. And it amazed me to what going aboard a ship was like. You can't describe the feeling unless you're a teenager going into a completely alien, strange world. Mm -hmm. That's the best way I can put it. And we were taken up to the chief engineer's office, myself and three other guys, and had a three by five 
triplex, triplex seats. Mm -hmm. One went to the uh, chief engineer to describe what you were there for, your position. Mm -hmm. One you kept. The third one went to the uh, union, the National Maritime right. Union. And the chief engineer asked me, well, you're a wiper, and told me where I said, no, sir, I'm, I'm a fireman. He looked me straight in the face and told me I don't have no niggas in my engine room. Wow. That was the mm -hmm. first time I found out in the Merchant Marine what it meant to be a black American. Mm -hmm. But I told him that the only way I would go back to the Union was all that he signed it. one of the slips to send me back. He wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. I stayed on the ship. It was rough. He rode me like a horse. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but the one thing I could say, under his treatment, I got to be a good fireman because he demanded so much of me. Because mm -hmm. you were going into that situation where you hadn't done this stuff before, you really had to probably learn a lot of it on the job. Right. And so now you had an extra incentive to make sure you did it right and learn fast. I had to live by the book. Mm -hmm. Luckily, I had studied pretty well, mm -hmm. and I knew what the different valves, mm -hmm. uh, instruments, I'll call them, the verters, what they were, how you did them, and I managed. Mm -hmm. The one problem I had, they had periscopes where you could look up through the smokestack mm -hmm. when the fires were going to see if you had the right mixture of oil and air. Right. Otherwise, you'd get smoke mm -hmm. that obliterated your sight mm -hmm. in the periscope. And sooner, though with me, the chief would call down and tell me I got smoke. Now, if it was white, I had too much air. Mm -hmm. If it was black, I didn't have enough air. And I listened to that for six weeks that I went to Liverpool, England, and came back that he made sure I didn't have any smoke because mm -hmm. when you got the right mixture you don't get any smoke right. and that's what I had to live with but he stayed on my neck until I learned how to do it right. Mm -hmm. Now um, what was when did you make that first voyage? That I left on the I can't remember it was in February of 44 mm -hmm. And we were went left New York in part of our convoy, mm -hmm. <clears throat> headed into the North Atlantic, off of the Grand Bank. You joined up with the Canadian part right. of the convoy, and there the convoys picked up what normally we call the vets. It was a, almost a motorboat. Was the Corvettes, the really small escort ship? Small, about the size of our American Coast Guard cutters. Right. And they escorted you across the North Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And from New York, you had the blimps and the Coast Guard going up the coast. Mm -hmm. But when you got to the Grand Banks, that's when the Corvettes took over right. and took you across. I was very lucky, extremely lucky. We, I never lost 
a ship that I was on mm -hmm. in a convoy. And in 1944, it was a pool game out there for the German submarines. But I was fortunate. No ship I was on went down. Now, were there ships in that first convoy that did go down? I don't remember ever in any convoy that I went in, and it seems but odd, and I only made three. Mm -hmm. Convoys because I shipped into the Mediterranean after I made the third second mm -hmm. trip. But I don't remember losing any ships as they were. It was at night mm -hmm. and I had the 4-8 watch. And that time it was sunrise or sunset. Mm -hmm. You're down the engine room, you don't know what they're right. doing up there right. unless a torpedo hits your ship. That's right. Yeah. Well, at that point in the war, the Germans were not as successful with the submarines as they had been a year or so earlier. There no. were still some out there, and it was still dangerous. Uh, right. But more, but it was probably not what most of the convoys did get through by then without taking a whole lot of losses. Right. But when you're in the engine room, yeah, you wouldn't know. You don't know what's going on until somebody tells you or you get one. What I do recall, they had a system called the degaussing system around the entire length of the ship. Mm -hmm. I never really understood what it was, but I assumed it was to demagnetize. Yeah. yeah. They create a separate kind of magnetic field or something like that yeah. so that the if the magnetic torpedoes or whatever don't go off. Yeah. I never knew the technical mm -hmm. uh, description of it, but that was an assumption. But every ship I went on had that degaussing system, mm -hmm. particularly Delivery ships, mm -hmm. which every seaman just about had to go on. Right, right. And uh, I never lost one, and I was fortunate. I realized that because I was not North Atlantic. It was cold, mm -hmm. and it was rough. Yeah. What was that on that first voyage? I mean, you hadn't, you'd never seen a big boat before. Now you're on one in the middle of the Atlantic. What was that like to ride in? I got sick. Seasick the first voyage. Mm -hmm. And the first thing the guys gave me, being a teenager, and most of the guys on the show were older than I was, they got me to eat saltine crackers. Mm -hmm. Every time I got queasy, I'd eat saltine crackers. I only remember throwing up once. Mm -hmm. But after that, I got what was called my sea legs. Right. And I never got seasick since, and I've never been seasick since then. I guess I was fortunate. And did you have any really bad weather on that first trip, or was it just ordinary North Atlantic? Uh, I do recall when we went to England the second time, mm -hmm. we had planes and tanks on deck. Mm -hmm. And during a storm that in the North Atlantic, the waves to break the waves, mm -hmm. tore two of the planes off the deck. Mm -hmm. And I had the same thing occur when I went into the Mediterranean, going to Oran, then mm -hmm. for Oran to Palermo, that after we crossed into the Mediterranean from Gibraltar, the seas took two locomotives. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they had, I think, at least one-inch cables mm -hmm. strapped to cleats, 
and then she's just took them all. But I don't recall ever having lost a guide to the sea mm -hmm. from the ship. Yeah, it's actually pretty surprising how few people get washed off considering all, all the stuff that they went through and everything else they had. It, it, it is, because all kind of weather, you still got to walk the deck right. to do your job. Mm -hmm. And you're lucky if you don't break your neck or break your leg because the ship is from one end, mm -hmm. one side to the other, constantly in rough weather. Now, was your usual station there in the engine room, was that toward the middle of the ship or was it in the stern or where was it? On tankers, the propulsion unit was on the end mm -hmm. with a short, what we call a short shaft. Mm -hmm. That's where the uh, term, given a short shaft, mm -hmm. come from. And it just run maybe 30 or 40 foot from the engine itself to the outside of the ship. Mm -hmm. Now on cargo ships, the engine room is midships. Mm -hmm. And you had half of the ship with the, uh, the, the shaft mm -hmm. running back to the propeller. Uh, but that was the main difference, except on some of the later cargo ships, they put the engines back in the aft quarters, like they had on tankers, because it was more cargo room right. on the rest of the ship. Now, when you were on one of those tankers and you were on duty engine room and the sea was rough, were you going up and down a lot with the stern of the ship? Not so much on the stern mm -hmm. as the roll. Okay. Because I guess it was a big enough and a long enough ship, you wouldn't have the bow go up and down as much as in a shorter one, but you'd still roll side to side. The, the, bow, the bow went up a lot more than the stern because the bow was the first thing to hit the waves. Yeah. And by the time it got to the mid and the aft end of the ship, it was ready to follow. Mm -hmm. So that you've got the rest of the ship that is bridged mm -hmm. in between. So it wasn't too bad back there. Not, not so bad. All right. Now, how, would, how did you get along with the guys in, in, in the crew that you were work, working with directly? I mean, you had trouble with your chief engineer on that first ship, but what about the rest of the guys? Except for rare occasions, I got along quite well. Mm -hmm. Once in a while, you'd get a bully on board ship, and that would happen mostly, at least for me. If you were on the four to eight, you took a break, they left to give you relief mm -hmm. in the engine room to come up and eat. Mm -hmm. Well, in the mess room, they saved two spaces for the two men coming off, off relief mm -hmm. from the engine room. And somebody would take your seat. Mm -hmm. And one time I had one big guy, I'll never forget his name, his name was Starjinsky. Funny how you remember names mm -hmm. and incidents. The Star Jessica was a big, massive guy. And he was sitting in my seat that I was supposed to eat. Well, I walk up and I told him, this is my seat. He told me to sit on the floor. As big as he was, I told him he was going to move, and I got in a fight with this big guy. Mm -hmm. Luckily, the crew broke it up. Otherwise, I'd have been smashed. Mm -hmm. But it eventually worked out, other than a couple of racial epitaphs from what I can term as ignorant because on the whole, by the vast majority of seamen that I met, mm -hmm. 
was civil. And I had, by the vast majority, absolutely no racial incidents, except on rare occasions. But you learn to deal with it like you learn to deal with rough seas. Mm -hmm. And I, I apply that to living today. Mm -hmm. right. uh, now, did you get much of a chance uh, to go on shore as you went to these places in Europe, you were in England or Italy or Sicily? Uh, Going ashore, you yeah. mean? Oh, yeah, you went ashore and usually find a, a bar mm -hmm. and buy trinkets or something to take back home. I shouldn't say this, but you always look for a female companionship. And uh, it's kind of difficult to really elaborate on the should I say the intricacies of excursions is mm -hmm. sure. Sure. But we had our fun and mm -hmm. I got to the point where I used to try to seek out uh, people, regular people, wherever I'd go out of void, mm -hmm. going to the bars. Yeah. And get to know the people in the cities mm -hmm. away from the dock. Right so that I could better understand mm -hmm. and try to learn the language. Right. Because if you don't speak the language, you get beat by the language, and then you learn to count. Mm -hmm. The only way you learn to count the money is counting with the people you're dealing with. Yep. And you learn to bargain. Mm -hmm. When you buy something, you learn to distinguish between quality, not only materially, mm -hmm but with the people you meet. Mm -hmm. Now, um, were the, did the people behave differently toward you in England as opposed to Italy, or pretty much the same, or was it just depending well, on they were? Yes. Being a person of color gave you a sort of advantage, at least from my point of view. Mm -hmm. You were a relative oddity coming into a port, mm -hmm. because black Americans were almost, there were rumors that had been put out by uh, Caucasian Americans mm -hmm. about some blacks had tails. Mm -hmm. uh, these uh, rumors and lies were portrayed for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And I would find a lot of the uh, English people would walk up to you and want to see your hair. And that's why your hair is so short. Mm -hmm. But there were black Americans in World War One mm -hmm. that had been to England, had been to France, but that was, what, a generation before. Yeah. And why there was such a lack of knowledge, uh, but the rumors put out by Caucasian Americans about black Americans mm -hmm. was for their own purposes. Yeah. And, but it didn't stop people from wanting to be friendly with you. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly when I got to Spain or Southern Italy mm -hmm. and in the Middle East, uh, it was more of a simulation and closer to a color. Mm -hmm that the people accepted you 
less questionably mm -hmm. than they did in Europe. Mm -hmm. But on the whole, I made it my business to try to be as normal under the circumstances to try to understand mm -hmm. them. And I, one thing I found out is that most European Americans portrayed a sense of superiority, which uh, later on I termed, found a term that the Middle East had a term for Americans, the dirty Americans. Mm -hmm. And people wonder now why there's such animosity. It's because the Americans prior to this generation mm -hmm. had made such uh, asinine spectacles of themselves mm -hmm. in those countries. I've seen that myself. Uh, you have? Even in the 1980s, yeah. It's been, but that's not my interview. But anyway, I, I, I've seen what you're talking about, and I expect it might have been a lot worse then. Uh, it, it was prevalent. I was in India when India got her independence, because mm -hmm. I was shipping with American export lines then. And I love going to India, because you went through the Mediterranean, down through the Suez, out mm -hmm. the Red Sea, into the Indian Ocean, then the Arabian Ocean. Mm -hmm. And when I got to India, and what is now Sri Lanka was Colombo, Ceylon, the difference in the lives, and I realized that in America we were so fortunate, mm -hmm. because in India you had people sleeping on cots, under cots, mm -hmm. whole families sleeping on the street, which was termed by the Indians as the untouchables. Mm -hmm. That was one of the most moving and disturbing things that I ever encountered. I guess that's one reason why I stayed on that run, because when I came back home, I used to go to the Five and Dime Woolworth mm -hmm. and buy clothes, cheap clothes, because mm -hmm. then you could buy a, a shirt for $50, you know, a small shirt for yeah. a child for 10 or 15 cents. Mm -hmm. And we was making pretty good money. And I'd buy clothes so when I got back to Bombay or Cochin or one of the mm -hmm. stops in Madras or Calcutta, mm -hmm. even uh, this new uh, Mayan was Myanmar, yeah, Ranga. Yeah. That was Rangoon right, then. Right. And it was just as bad. Mm -hmm. And I would take clothes until the Americans got involved sending clothes mm -hmm. in, in bales on board ship to take these clothes to people because they had none. Mm -hmm. And you'd see kids being distorted, their limbs mm -hmm. actually being distorted by the parents so that they could beg on the street. Mm -hmm. That really moved me and opened my eyes to how fortunate, myself as a black man in America, was in comparison to what, and I look at that today. Mm -hmm. As a black American, yes, it could be a lot better. Mm -hmm. But I look at what the rest of the world gives the man of color, 
and I have a good deal. I've been relatively successful. I owe it to the Merchant Marine because I learned. Well, one of the things that I usually ask people at, at the end of the interview, and we're not there yet, uh, is, sort of, is sort of how they think their experience affected you. But I think you just sort of told me right there. You saw things in a way you never would have if you hadn't gone out there and done that. Right. You, you, can't, you can't really view it or see it unless you see it in person. When India got her independence, the Muslims, and the Hindus were fighting. Mm -hmm. In Calcutta, Muslims on one side, the Hindus on the other, shooting at each other. Is that where you were at that point? Uh, well, I was in Calcutta, mm -hmm. and the captain told us of the ship that we couldn't go ashore. Mm -hmm. And I never had any problem. I'd get out, get a rickshaw, mm -hmm. and go up Chowringi, which was the main street in Calcutta, past the Victoria Hotel and into the Indian population itself. Mm -hmm. And you'd see people shooting each other, killing each other. I remember one incident uh, right down the street from the uh, Victoria Hotel. The two Englishmen were in a rickshaw. A rickshaw is a vehicle mm -hmm. on two wheels that you know what it's like. Yeah, it's pulled by people. Yeah, two people. Mm -hmm. And two Indians or a crowd of Indians were running behind this rickshaw with a cobblestone. And they grab a hold to the wheels of this rickshaw and it tipped over. Mm -hmm. When it tipped over, the two Englishmen fell out and this crowd of Indians mm -hmm. took these cobblestones and began beating them. Mm -hmm. And I watched this, but there was nothing I could do because there was a mess. Right. And when it was all over, they just disappeared. But that was the animosity because of the English occupation sure. and the freedom that the Indians, not that it, you know, justified what occurred, but I was struck by how vindictive and how hate, much hate mm -hmm. was engendered in the Indian population against the British, yeah. which had, in my estimation, uh, completely took advantage of the whole Indian nation. Mm -hmm. and I, I learned so much from it. Mm -hmm. right. Now let's go back a little bit uh, in terms of your career here in the Merchant Marine, uh, you make several voyages to Europe and to the Mediterranean. Where were you when the war in Europe ended? Was that about May of 45? I was, I think I'd just come back from the Pacific. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. and I was in Los Angeles when, uh, when uh, the war ended. Mm -hmm. and uh, I on the way back to the East Coast. And everybody on the train was full of fun and joy. Okay. Loved it. And it was just a lot of fun coming back. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't out in the street to celebrate, to say all we got was the news that it was over. Mm -hmm. But that didn't stop me from sailing. I sailed for years after that. Okay. 
Now, uh, when was the first time you went to the Pacific? Well, uh, that was during, let's see, the, they sent us from New York, that's in 45, they sent us from New York to Los, uh, Los Angeles, San Pedro, and we, I took a tanker out of San Pedro, the Bunker Hill, I remember that. It was a turboelectric tanker, a T2 tanker. And we went to Saipan, Anahuitoc, mm -hmm. and on the way back, we got a message from Honolulu that was mistakenly intercepted by the radio operator, I think, mm -hmm. for the Bunker Hill. And for the Forest Hill, and ours was the Bunker Hill. Mm -hmm. Whether he got the last end of the hill, mm -hmm. we went into Hawaii and found out we wasn't supposed to be there. And they sent us all the way back to the States. Do you like reminding your radio operator friends about that? No. <laughs> I wouldn't embarrass them by saying that. I'd get my head knocked off. But it, it was one of the unique things, and I had an opportunity which was offered by the military at that time, the army had, the government had built concrete barges, mm -hmm. which they were towing out to the Pacific to store oil and gas mm -hmm. for services on the island since right. they didn't have enough room. Mm -hmm. And they were offering commissions for merchant seamen to go home to live on the barges while they were out there. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to go out there. I didn't take that. Yeah. It wasn't something I wanted to do. Okay. Uh, now, when you were sailing in the Pacific uh, before the war ended, uh, did you go into uh, any of the battle zone areas, or did you mostly stay away no, I, from things? When I, the islands I went to were after the, they were occupied. Right. Right. And I never got to any of the war zones, per mm -hmm. se. I didn't even get to Korea. Uh, during that conflict mm -hmm. because I was back on the East Coast shipping out mm -hmm. and I was predominantly shipped out from there until in the 60s then I started going to Australia mm -hmm. and that's where I spent most of my time, the latter part of my career going back and forth through Australia south through the Panama Canal mm -hmm. until I retired. At a certain point, did you switch out of the merchant marine and go into just private shipping, or how did that? Well, the merchant marine remained a merchant marine. You merely got a discharge mm -hmm. after the war. Right. Those that were, well, to back up a bit, in '43 to get, as I said, to get the draft off, you had to join the Naval Reserve. present for you. Oh boy. Is that for me? That's for you. Oh boy, thank you. See, that's the date's 3945. Mm -hmm. uh, no. I just the right time. Thank you. There you go. Uh, All right. So you're saying about the Naval Reserve and... And that was for disciplinary and control purposes to keep you dry, the draft off you. Mm -hmm. After the war ended, I got an honorable discharge 
mm -hmm. from the Naval Reserve, then just continued sailing, but as a private citizen. Right. There was no other than the Coast Guard for regulatory mm -hmm. and discipline. Mm -hmm. There was no other contact with the government. Right. Okay. Um, and so, then how long did you continue to sail then? I sailed until 1971. You saw probably a lot of things in, in that time. Huh? Uh, what are there other kind of uh, parts of that experience that, that you particularly remember? I mean, you talked about I mean, there's a, there's the Indian part of it, but were you sailing, for instance, to Africa in the period when oh, those yeah, countries I, were becoming independent? Uh, yeah, when they closed the Suez Canal, mm -hmm. I was on the India run, and we had to go all the way around the southern tip of Africa. Mm -hmm. We stopped at Cape Town mm -hmm. to refuel. And then all the way up the east coast of Africa into Aden, where you refueled again. Mm -hmm. And I got a glimpse to Djibouti, which is uh, Somali. Mm -hmm. And that's when I learned about one of the astonishing things the Sudanese, because of the heat, bathe themselves in sheep's oil. Mm -hmm. And if you want to smell something, smell rancid sheep's oil. <laughs> and here these guys come aboard the ship to load and unload cargo, mm -hmm. and it is stifling and hot. Or you run into, when the canal opened up again, you come down through the Red Sea, we encountered, uh, or I best I can call it, a storm of locusts mm -hmm. coming from the Arabian side of the Red Sea going to the African side. Mm -hmm. And you're standing out ahead of here, all of these grasshoppers, we call grasshoppers, yeah. and the sky is almost black with the grasshoppers. You see them falling down in the stack from the heat coming out with the smoke. It's fine when they're falling in the stack, they're falling on the deck. They're hopping all over the deck, you gotta run back in the house, shut your, and it's hot. You've got to bolt down your portholes or close the glass mm -hmm. to keep the rack, the uh, crickets, uh, hot grasshoppers or locusts from coming in. You close the doors, and can you imagine what that's like in that kind of weather? Mm -hmm. It is stupefying, and you're working in the engine room. No such thing as air conditioning mm -hmm. then. It was hot. Okay. What was the best kind of ship to crew on? Well, after the war they had the C-1, C-2s, and C-3s. Their accommodations were a lot better. And each watch, uh, firemen, water tenders, the firemen, water tender, the order, Normally there's a combination fireman and water tender was the same. Mm -hmm. And the oiler had their own rooms and shared a bathroom mm -hmm. with uh, the oiler or either the deck engineer or one of the other watches. So that you had some privacy, but on board the Liberty ships, 
It was bare con bare steel walls. Mm -hmm. And some places they blew the asbestos as insulation mm -hmm. on the uh, on the walls of the mm -hmm. ship. Yeah. And now I know what asbestos did for you. Mm -hmm. And uh, but that time it was for warmth. Mm -hmm. uh, one time when I went to England, they wanted to uh, find guys that were ready to change from the convoys coming into England to transfer to ships that were going to Russia. Mm -hmm. And you could get, you could change ships and take that, continue your voyage if you mm -hmm. wanted to. But it was too cold going up there. Mm -hmm. So I never did want one of those. But the accommodations were better on the latest ships mm -hmm. than they were the victory ships. They were a bit more comfortable and they were faster ships. The Liberty ships were the old eight, ten knots. Mm -hmm. The Liberty ships were the workhorses. Mm -hmm. And actually they saved the United States during the war. They built them, mm -hmm. they sunk them, and they built some more. Yep. But after that, it just got to be fast and speed. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the United States gave up its superiority in shipbuilding mm -hmm. as it has yes. with everything else to foreign nations. We have no merchant marine now. Mm -hmm. I don't, I can tell you one shipping company that is American owned. I don't know of any. If there are any, maybe one or two. And even if they are, they probably have ships with foreign registry. Oh yeah, they'll sign the cargo. Even our military is assigning foreign ships to carry our military cargo. Mm -hmm. What happens if we have another war? We got no merchant marine. We're paying everybody else to do what Americans should be doing for their country. Look at what they did with the, the new tanker. Boeing, Glen L. Martin, all of them built tankers. But we've got to give it to a foreign country, and we're paying for it. Now, what led you to decide to leave, to leave uh, shipping? Did you, did you retire out of there in 71? That's, if I may say a bit, well, you know, they, I have been married three times, mm -hmm. and all of them, Failed because I was an emergency marine. They say absence make the heart grow fonder, but they never tell you for who. Mm -hmm. So as a seaman, it grows fonder for somebody else, mm -hmm. and you find out too late. And my third wife, I thought if I stopped sailing, I could save it, but it didn't help. And once I had retired, I just got into a comfortable job ashore mm -hmm. and stayed there. What kind of work did you get into? Well, I got into industrial maintenance, mm -hmm. and I worked it for the military uh, at Fort Dix and at various army installations mm -hmm. where government contracts were involved in private industry, mm -hmm. took over government contract where maintenance was involved, and I worked it that way. Mm -hmm. And then finally I got, went to work for various industrial 
uh, entities in the same maintenance department as maintenance man, maintenance supervisor, and that's where I retired from mm -hmm. when I retired working. Are there other particular events from your time traveling around the world that sort of stick out in your mind or are particularly distinctive? Are things that you tend to remember a lot? Well, mostly my time to really get back into the American life was a kind of shock. Mm -hmm. The extreme difference to what I was used to on board ship. Mm -hmm. On board ship, you did your job. Right. You got respect. Mm -hmm. You were just another seaman. Occasionally, the racial issues came up, but very, very rarely. Mm -hmm. But when I started working ashore, is when the monstrosity of racial bigotry really came home to roost. <clears throat> It was painful mm -hmm. because all of my growing up, I hadn't really experienced that I would get periodic and infrequent brushes with it because I stayed at sea. Right. But when I came back home, I was confronted with it in travel. Mm -hmm. Well, my family originally was from South Carolina. If I went to visit them, the social moors, the racial moors there, was in evidence. Mm -hmm. And occasionally, often I'd run into it in New Jersey. And it was something you had to, although it was painful, you had to deal with it. Mm -hmm. You learned to wear more or less a coat of armor. You know it's there, but you physiologically and emotionally set your barriers up mm -hmm. so that the pain, the shock, the unfairness of it didn't make you bitter and lose your perspective. Mm -hmm. You stay better than they are. If I could live through it, and I did, mm -hmm. I was a better person. Right. I always carried with me ignorance is bliss. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know me, you're not going to know me. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to prove who I am. It caused me to lose a lot of my philosophical bent to develop a philosophy that fit me as an individual. And I turned to agnosticism rather than the accepted religions mm -hmm. because I saw too much hypocrisy in it. Mm -hmm. where they say, love your fellow man and all of that. Mm -hmm. That was only words. No one was living it. Mm -hmm. So I had to develop the philosophy that got me through life. It made me a better person, which I hope it did. Mm -hmm. You've certainly become an impressive one. Yeah. So I thank you very much for taking the time to talk it's to me. It's been a pleasure and I've enjoyed it. And I hope that... Uh... The preceding program is copyrighted by Grand Valley State University. Visit us at gbsu.edu.